When we wanted to replace our old van, a friend suggested that I check out the Skoda Kodiak. So I did, I looked at their online brochure. Now, they are not just selling you a car, are they? They're selling you a dream. They're selling you a promise of happiness, of life put right. Well, we are looking at Ecclesiastes and it's an investigation of the hevel of life. That Hebrew word for mist or vapor or a breath. That in an under the sun world, as the writer repeatedly puts it, where this life and secular scientific materialism is all there is, life is fleeting and it just doesn't work the way it should and ultimately it is empty of meaning. But in today's passage, the writer takes us down all the roads that promise you a way out, all the paths that promise you happiness in an under the sun, this life is all there is world. Because it's not just the car adverts that are promising you that, is it? And who better to take us on that ride than Solomon, the man who was wise and wealthy and with it. Because if like him, you had wealth beyond imagining and the time and the intellectual capacity to investigate life, surely you would find meaning in life, wouldn't you? First point, the promise of help. Blaise Pascal famously said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception, whatever different means they use. But what are those means? In a world where this life is all there is, where can you find happiness? Stop number one, the university library, verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, as a student, my physiology tutor was Dr. Hillier, and Dr. Hillier would repeatedly refer to Mother Nature. And one supervision, it got just too much, and I said, uh, Dr. Hillier, I think you meant to say Father God. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Slack, you have a very cavalier attitude to your studies. Well, no one could accuse Solomon of that, could they? Because he applied himself to this search for meaning through the life of the mind. But why take that approach as the first one? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? In a naturalistic, materialistic world, our greatest enemy is ignorance. And so the answer is, expand our knowledge. If we can just understand the world in which we live, if we can just fill in the holes of our knowledge, then we will have the answer to humanity's problems. Apply yourself to the scientific effort or the philosophical pursuit. Read the great authors, or if that's too daunting, pick up a book from the self-help section of the airport bookshop and you will begin to find an answer. 
to why we're here. And the preacher says, verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, have you ever watched children playing in the wind, running around trying to catch the wind? That is a fun game when you are seven. But what if that's life? What if all our attempts to find meaning through knowledge are as hopeless as that? Leonard Wolf, the British intellectual and political theorist, said of all his writing, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping-pong instead of writing books. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Maybe he was just depressed. Well then, listen to Richard Dawkins, evangelist for an under the sun, knowledge and science are the answer to life, approach to life. Human existence, he says, is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. So the outcome of the approach to life that he wants you to adopt to provide an answer to your reason for existence is, there is no reason. Your existence is utterly without purpose. Well, at least he's honest. But the preacher goes even further. He explains why the philosophical or scientific approach can never satisfy your search for meaning. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, no matter how much you think, you can't straighten life out. There's a bentness, there's a warpedness to life that knowledge alone can never sort or answer. There are dreams you can't fulfill, there are desires you can't satisfy. Because in an under the sun world in which God and the supernatural have been erased, then by definition all problems are natural and they must have a natural solution. And the preacher is saying, yes, but that is a false premise and it leaves you unable to straighten out what's wrong or count what can't be counted. Because neither science nor philosophy can ever tell you why you matter in a world where nothing ultimately matters. They can never tell you why you have these desires that this world can't satisfy. Sure, you may end up with a razor-sharp mind, but your heart will still be empty. And the result is, 
you end up more depressed than ever. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see, when you begin to face the facts of a worldview like Dawkins's, where your life is devoid of purpose and human existence is callous, it leads to existential despair. So all you've done is increase the problem. You know, there's a story of some parents who got their son's end-of-year school report in which the teacher wrote, if ignorance is bliss, your son is going to be the happiest person on earth. And the preacher would smile and go, yup, in a world where God has been removed, you're better off not thinking too deeply about it. But what kind of a worldview is that? You see, the existential unhappiness that comes with such a worldview, which comes with such a view of life, should make you question such a view of life, shouldn't it? Verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And so the writer observes the restlessness of our hearts, this search for meaning, and he sees it as a restlessness given by God. As C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And the preacher's saying, your restlessness should tell you you've been made to rest. Your search for meaning and purpose tells you there is meaning and purpose to be found. But if science and philosophy can't give you that rest, where else are you supposed to turn? To pleasure, the preacher says. Stop number two, the bars and concert halls. Chapter two, verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Ask yourself, if you could have all your desires for enjoyment and pleasure satisfied, would you be satisfied? Who are you kidding, says the preacher, verse 1. Behold, this also was vanity. And Solomon should know, shouldn't he? Verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now those two words, laughter and pleasure, represent two different forms of pleasure, what we might call low or highbrow culture. There's laughter, go out on a Saturday night, have some beers, watch the latest comedian. Or there's pleasure. Should we go to the gallery and after that go on to the classical concert tonight? But high or low, they both fail to answer the emptiness of life, don't they? Now sure, a good ski-fail video can help you forget your problems, but it's a gallows humour. 
It lifts the weight for a moment, but only by diverting your attention, never by solving the problem. As Robin Williams said, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anybody else to feel like that. In other words, when you see the worthlessness of life in an under-the-sun world, what is there to do but drown the facts with laughter? Sure, says the preacher, but that still doesn't change the facts. It still can't tell you that you matter. It just numbs the pain. In fact, he says, it's madness. Not mental madness, but moral madness. A failure to face the facts and read the world right madness. Okay, sure, but what about higher culture? Because music and art and even fine dining, they can offer you moments of transcendence, can't they? Sure, those moments when just for a moment a window opens into a world above the sun and you know there is more to life than this. You know, I listen to the radio station Swiss Classics when I'm driving around in the car, much to my girl's disgust, and they recently played an excerpt from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and even the girls fell temporarily silent in the back. Because how could you not? You know, Leonard Bernstein, the composer, describes in his book The Joy of Music a conversation he had with a friend on a road trip about how every great composer sought a magic ingredient, the inexplicable ability to know what the next note has to be. And then Bernstein said, Beethoven had this gift in a degree that leaves them all panting in the rear. Our boy, Beethoven, has the real goods the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish. Something is right in the world, something we can trust that will never let us down. To which his friend replied, but that is almost a definition of God. To which Bernstein said, I meant it to be. But scientific materialism says, nope, it's just a chemical reaction in your brain. There is no stuff from heaven. There is no right in the world. Because what Bernstein says and what you know from experience to be true only works if there is a God, if there is a way for this world to be right, if there is a note that should come next, if there is purpose and meaning. But if there isn't, then like laughing at a stand-up comic, music and art are just temporary distractions from hopelessness. Well then, says the preacher, stop number three, go to Hornbark. Fill your time with projects, verses four and five. 
I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now what's he doing? It is as if he's trying to recreate Eden, a world of beauty in a world of heaven. He's trying to get back to a world that's right, in which he has his place. But it's a secular Eden. And he fills this Eden with all the trappings of power and wealth. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers and many concubines. Pleasure, projects, power, possessions, and plenty of sex. And his verdict, verse 11, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Hedonism, he says, is like those kids chasing the wind. Because the more you try to squeeze things for pleasure, the less they satisfy. And like an addict, because we are, you need something stronger, something bigger, something to give you the rush that you seek. They promise so much, but they fail to deliver on the critical issue of life, which is its end. Second point then, the problem of death. Now, one of the problems that doctors face is explaining risk. Let's say a disease carries a risk of dying of 20%. Great, you think, I have an 80% chance of survival. Not if you're in the 20%. And the preacher says, we're all in the 20%. Verse 14. The same event happens to all. It doesn't matter whether you've lived a wise or a foolish life. It doesn't matter if you've enjoyed opera or opera. You are going to die. To quote Robin Williams again, Believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold and die. As one commentator puts it, death is the ultimate auditor's report. And if philosophy and pleasure are like bubbles twinkling in the sun of an under-the-sun world, death is the needle that bursts them. And what does that do for all our accomplishments? Verses 15 to 17, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. So I hated life. You see, it's not just that we die. It's that everyone who knows us will die. Death, 
the great leveller will do its work and everyone will be levelled. And eventually the world itself will be levelled. And your desire to make a lasting contribution, to live on through your reputation, will be levelled. It will be gone. Which makes every project pointless. No wonder, he says, I hated life. Now, when a parent plays a game with their child, they've got a decision to make, haven't they? Do they let their child win or not? Let them win, and the problem is they may get a false sense of how good they are, but always beat them, and they'll never want to play. They'll give up, because what's the point? Exactly, says the preacher, and death will always beat you. Every gravestone tells you, you can never win at life. So what's the point? And in verses 18 to 23, the preacher describes what every politician, maybe even what every academic knows. Spend your life building something up and the next guy comes along and knocks it all down. And yet, it's not just death that makes you question the value of your work, is it? Think about stress. Verses 22 to 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Think of the sleepless nights your work brings. And for what? If this life is really all there is, you're staying up at night worrying about something that is going to be entirely forgotten, the preacher says. What is that? It's Hevel, he says. Now, as the father of four daughters, I have witnessed one or two emotional moments. Because let's face it, there are times when the pointlessness of work or study or of life and the fact that we can't make straight what is bent, there are just times when that gets to you, aren't there? And when those moments come, in our family we call it throwing yourself in the pit. Well, the preacher knows what that pit looks like. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. He threw himself in the pit. Because when you see life and work and wisdom and pleasure for what they really are in a world where nothing matters, what is there to do but despair? Third point then, the answer of grace. Because down in that pit, a shaft of light shines. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Listen, the preacher is saying, 
If you make pleasure and work ends in themselves, if you think they're what life is ultimately about, you're never gonna find satisfaction. But what if there's another way of seeing life? What if you do allow God to enter your closed world? What if you begin to see food and drink and work and pleasure as his gifts to you, as evidence of his grace to you? How might that impact your life? What if life is about enjoying what God gives you rather than you trying to squeeze out of stuff what it was never meant to give you in the first place? What if life is gift, not gain? Verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The nihilist says, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The hedonist says, eat, drink and be merry and don't think about dying. And the preacher says, nah, eat, drink and be merry because although tomorrow we die, these are God's good gifts to you and you are safe in his hands because when you first have him, then you can begin to find joy in the face of heaven. You see, you can search for meaning in an under the sun world and you will fail. But what if all along God has been searching for you? Like he came for Adam and Eve in the garden asking, where are you? You know, John's gospel tells us that Jesus's first miracle was to turn six enormous great jars of water into wine at a wedding feast. Now, why make that your first miracle? Because Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the host of the greatest of all parties. Look for joy and ultimate fulfillment in food and wine and romance and pleasure and sex, and you will fail to find it. Because it's only in me that you will find the joy that never ends, the joy that doesn't leave your head with a hangover or your heart full of regrets. You know, a woman once met Jesus at a well and she had gone through a long list of sexual relationships. And Jesus says to her, whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. In other words, you go from one man's bed to another, thinking, hoping, this one will love me, this one will tell me that I matter, but it's in me that you will find something far more satisfying than all the bedrooms in the world could ever offer you. It's in me that you will find the one who will tell you you are loved. You know, Solomon tried to find the point of life through wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus came and said, 
someone greater than Solomon is here because it's in me that you will find the meaning that you are searching for. The preacher says that in and under the sun world, our work is futile. But Jesus came as one who worked, as a carpenter who worked with his hands. But his ultimate work was at the cross. And Isaiah says of that work, out of the anguish, the toil of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Because it's at the cross that Jesus begins to unravel the heaven of life. You see, if death is the needle that bursts the bubbles of philosophy and pleasure and power and possessions, who will burst death's bubble? Jesus does. Fine art and music offer you moments when just for a moment you know there's a world above the sun. But through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus punches a hole through to that world and you begin to see that your life really does matter. You see, when you live life as gift, not as gain, when you see your relationships or your work or your possessions, not as things to be squeezed, but as gifts of his grace, then you'll begin to see yourself as a caretaker of blessing, blessing with which to serve others with along the way. And as you do that, you will find contentment. And as Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Now that word sinner means one who misses the mark, who misses the point of life, who thinks that life is about getting, that life is about acquiring more knowledge or achieving more goals or experiencing more highs or going through ever more relationships. But in the end, that's all he gets, the preacher says. But see all of life as God's gracious gift to you, and that grace will begin to change you. From an attitude of needing the next thing to satisfy you, to one of gratitude and thankfulness, and a life of gratitude is always going to be more joyful than a life of getting. In Psalm 16, David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Christ is at God's right hand. So see in him the greatest gift of all, and you will rightly handle philosophy and pleasure and projects and power and possessions and you'll enjoy the ride as you do.